So now, Elijah and Elisha. Ooh, this is, this is wild. It is, it's going to be wild. Not because of my preaching. It's just if, if we don't get in the way of it, you know, <clears throat> just to hear what, see what God does. We're going to start on page 298, 1 Kings 16. <clears throat> uh, we at, Elijah comes on the scene in chapter 17, verse 1, but you'll notice we're picking up chapter 16, verse 29. I know that extends the reading here a bit. That's already fairly long, but I've, I'd like you first to take out a pencil or if you have an eraser and you see that big 17 on the top of 299, just erase it and erase it and erase it till there's a hole there, okay? <laughs> um, of course, these are constructs added to the Bible uh, originally. And here is one of those unfortunate separations that it should read immediately, go from verse 34 to chapter 17, verse 1. So we want to read it that way and get a little sense, uh, which we'll talk about a little later, of what happens there. So chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, by the way, Omri was considered a great king. Not a lot of times devoted to him, but he was known as one of the great leaders. That's why it's so important to know this is the son of Omri. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. As if it had not been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Asher is the female counterpart to, to Baal. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did to the, uh, according to the word of the Lord, he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, 
And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you've said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come to him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, enable us, we pray, uh, to understand your word, to be gripped by your word, to hide it in our hearts, to live it out in our lives for your glory and honor. May we be encouraged by this display of your glory. May we give ourselves to you, Lord, and not to idols. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So first, we're going to give just a little background to for the environment in which Israel found herself, and then a little bit of the history that leads up to this. Okay, so a little bit of background. Now, in the Kimball, if you go to the uh, Piano Pavilion... And that's the new building, and you take a right, and you go straight through. You'll come to an urn. It's from, you've heard of the Aztecs. This is from the Zapotec uh, culture. About uh, the middle of the last millennia, or two millennia, so it's a 500 AD. It's about when this was built, this was made. It's clay, and it's made in the form of Cosillo, who is the god of lightning and rain. And it's about this tall. It's an urn. It holds water. It was actually put in the grave of people when they died. Well, Cassia 
has three fangs coming from his mouth and a snout that's kind of like a jaguar to indicate the roar of the jaguar and thunder. He's wearing a mask that makes his eyes look like clouds. And then he has a forked tongue that comes out of his mouth. That's the tongue of a snake, which is the symbol of lightning. So Casio is the god of the rain and the lightning for the Zapotecs in Mexico in 500 AD. So around Israel, Baal played that role. He was the god of the storm. He was actually called the rider of the cloud. And he's pictured with the lightning bolt in his hand. And the thunder was regarded as his voice. So you see, Israel was constantly tempted to worship the gods around them. And especially somebody like Baal. No rain, no crop, no life. And so you're tempted. Will Yahweh, our God, really care for us in this land? Or do we need to worship the God of the storm? The God of rain to make sure that our crops have water. And you and I might not think it's the same, but every time you're tempted to disobey God, it's really the same issue. Will God take care of me? Is I submit myself to his word under his care, under what he commands me to do and say and think? Will he take care of me or do I need to strike out in disobedience? To find happiness and meaning and significance and safety in this world. So every sin we struggle with is basically a temptation to worship Baal in one way or another. Hosea compares uh, Israel's abominable, uh, Israel to an adulterous wife. And he says... I will, he he puts these words in her mouth. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. You see, here's Israel abandoning her husband, Yahweh, the only true and living God, to take other gods thinking they will care for me, not Yahweh. They will provide for me water and food. So this is the background the surrounding environment for Israel. And then Israel's uh, recent history. You, you see here that it says, if, as if it had been a light thing in verse uh, 31 of chapter 16, for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now it just says it, and if you've been reading, you know what these sins were. Well, what happened is that with David and Solomon, Israel was one uh, nation. But... Under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, they separated out into a northern section and a southern section. And in the northern section, Jeroboam, and this was politically wise, though it was spiritually tragic. He decides that if my people go down to Jerusalem, they're going to have their head turned by Jerusalem. And maybe they'll become faithful and, and strike out their allegiance with, with Jerusalem. So I'm going to cut them off at the pass. We're going to set up our own worship in the northern kingdom. So he set up a, 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 a golden calf south in Bethel and a golden calf 
north in Dan. So northern people come up here and on your way down south, we're going to intercept you with this. And he says to them, behold the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And he set up his, his festivals same time as the festivals in the south. He set up his own priesthood, not the Levites, which were commanded of God to be a No, he sets up his own priesthood. So this is his own world, his own spiritual world, his own really religion that he sets up in the north. And 15 times throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings, there is reference to, and he walked in the sins of Jeroboam. They never got back on course because of Jeroboam. In fact, the last time it is said in chapter 15 of 2 Kings, verse 28, verse 29 says, speaks of how the Assyrians came and brought them into bondage. The last thing said, and he walked in the sins of Jeroboam and the Assyrians came. So it was bad. It was bad with Jeroboam. But he says here, if it, was bad, if it had been a light thing to do that, then he goes even further, much further. So Omri, his enterprising dad, a political and economic uh, wizard, sets up this allegiance between Phoenicia or Sidon and Israel. And you create an allegiance by having your children get married. So... Ahab marries Jezebel. And because of this, we read Baal, Baal, Baal. He served and worshipped Baal. He set up an altar for Baal. He has a house for Baal in the capital in Samaria of the northern kingdom. So it's Baal that we're going to honor. Baal we're going to trust. Baal we're going to follow. And, of course, his female Anat or Asherah comes along with the bargain. And Jezebel brought a detachment of 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah to saturate Israel with the good news of Baal. While she initiated a little police, uh, police action to round up and eliminate the prophets of Yahweh, a search and destroy mission. So right here in the land of Israel, that Israel becomes the killing fields of the prophets of Yahweh. And then as a final little sign of just how bad it was under Ahab, we have verse 34. Back when Jericho was destroyed, we know fit the battle of Jericho, the uh, threat was announced, the prophecy that if anyone sought to rebuild Jericho, it would be at the expense of his two sons, his youngest, his oldest and his youngest. And so we read here that in spite of that prophecy, he had no regard for this. He was saying, my kingdom will be built no matter what. Hiel got the contract. The foundation was laid as his firstborn Abiram was laid in the grave. And the gate was set up along with the grave marker of his youngest son, Segu. 
Welcome to the world of Ahab. The word of God does not matter anymore. We are in with Baal. Enter then Elijah. (laughs) Elijah comes on the scene so quickly. He's not introduced. We don't get background. We don't know who his daddy is or his granddaddy. He must not have been from the south. Um, We don't know God's call on his life. Nothing. It's just Ahab's sin. God pronounces judgment. Bam. That's That's how it reads. And one of the poems about Baal says, So I know the mighty one, Baal, lives. Lo, the prince, the Lord of the earth, lives. So here Elijah shows up, whose name means, My name is Yahweh. And as he pronounces here, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. That was in the face of Baal. No, you're not the one who lives. The Lord God of Israel lives. It will not rain until I say it will. Now, you may know that in Deuteronomy, God said, Take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them. The anger of God will be kindled against you. And guess what he will do? Yeah. Shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the yield will, kneel, will, will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord God has given you. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen and 17. And we learn from James chapter 5 that it didn't rain because Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. So apparently Elijah, knowing the covenant of God, being a prophet of God, he prays specifically, Oh Lord, fulfill your covenant judgments on Israel and hold the rain. Knowing that when God comes to judge, he comes to set things right. He comes to restore, which he will do one day, when he comes to judge the earth and restore his creation. But talk about taking it to Baal, the God of the storm, the rider of the cloud. And Yahweh says, it will not rain until I say it will rain. Elijah says, he is the rain giver, not you. Okay, Baal, let's see what you can do. Let's see what you got. As Dillard says, the great contest between Yahweh and Baal is now set and we'll soon discover which God lives. Now, this this event of things getting their worst and then Elijah coming on the scene, that they were already bad. And yet they got so much worse under Ahab. Remember always, brothers and sisters, that things will get worse again and again and again at various times throughout history. They will. Things will get worse in your own lifetime. Things will get worse in a church sometimes. Sometimes in your family or in your job or the city or the community. But always when things go from bad to worse, when you think it's, I've had five things crash in upon me and I think I'm out of it and two more crash in upon me. What is God doing? 
Remember that God always is working in his pur- at his purpose, just as he had Elijah all fired up, ready to roll. <laughs> right at the time Ahab comes on the scene, there is Elijah. Right when Ahab took his nosedive into idolatry with Jezebel, there is God always working, always moving forward. Not only does he know his next move, he's always making his next move. He's never outmaneuvered. He's always outmaneuvering the enemy. Always. Never despair. Never despair. God is ruling his world. Well... This is Elijah before Ahab, or you might say, breakout, all right? Then immediately, Elijah in the wilderness. You could subtitle this raven food, okay? Now, he leaves to bring a further judgment because he leaves to remove the word of God. If we refuse the word of God, God will take his word and he will bring it somewhere else. His word will go forth, and he will bless people wherever he chooses. If it's rejected in Samaria, then Yahweh is off to Zarephath. As Vera says, his word is always moving forward, whatever the human responses will be. God is always moving his word. Now, as we consider Elijah in the wilderness, it's important to drop back to Moses and remember that Moses, in his life, was a kind of representative of Israel or a picture of Israel. So, when Moses went into the wilderness for 40 years, being prepared to take them into Canaan, so Israel goes into the wilderness for 40 years before they enter Canaan. Well, Elijah is a second Moses in the theology of the Old Testament. And so his life also represents Israel. And so as Israel was in the wilderness and supplied miraculously by the food of God, so Elijah is in the wilderness and he is supplied miraculously with food from the ravens. He's repeating that Uh, history in his own life. And in a way then, he is also representing Israel, obedient Israel, faithful Israel, and how God will supply faithful Israel, even in the wilderness. He's showing that Yahweh is not only the Lord in Israel, the Lord of the heavens, he's the Lord in the wilderness, and he can create a garden in the wilderness, even as he did in a way with his own people. Jesus, of course, embodied Israel as well. That's why he had to flee to Egypt and was brought out of Egypt, just like Israel was brought out of Egypt. Why he went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted, even as Israel was in the wilderness 40 years in their temptation. And so, all the more, though, the Lord Jesus, in identifying with Israel, in identifying with his people, bears our sin on the cross. And so, Moses' identification with Israel, Elijah's identification with Israel, is nothing compared to Jesus' identification with his people. As he becomes so closely identified, he bears their wrath and raises them to new life. And he does it 
with ravens. Ravens are unclean birds. You understand? You can't eat ravens. He picks ravens. And you kind of wonder what the food is that the ravens would bring when you see crows on the side of the road getting their food. And I love what Ralph Davis says. What kind of food would ravens bring? Don't ask. <laughs> Simply cook it very well and eat up. <laughs> right? And isn't it wonderful that in our present spiritual wilderness as pilgrims, that God provides us with glorious food and drink. He provides us with the gospel. And he provides us with that glorious symbol of the gospel, the Lord's Supper, as the symbol of God's nourishment of his people in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of this desert world. He supplies his people richly with what his own son has accomplished on the cross and now pours out richly in his people's lives through the gospel, and through the sacrament. And this brook dried up, but you remember Jesus said, I will give you water that will spring up within you, water for everlasting life, and a water that will supply. How rich we are given, uh, how richly we are supplied by our Lord God through Jesus Christ. Well, that's Elijah in the wilderness. Now, Elijah in Zarephath. Part one, oil and flour. So the stream dries up, a change of plans. And I'm telling you, this is really, really hopeful. Uh, I'm going to send you to a widow. That's, that's a real hopeful thing. Uh, widows, of course, were typically helpless, helpless, impoverished, They had no opportunities. They had no job training programs. They had no night school. They didn't make ends meet. They were hanging on by a thread. And when drought hit, they're gone. They're the first ones to go. I'm sending you to a widow. But this is, I think, Yahweh's wonderful nature. And in some ways, maybe sense of humor. You know, it's going to be unclean birds. Then it's going to be a widow. So God can bring anything out of anywhere. He will bring encouragement where there just couldn't be any encouragement. He will bring a relationship at just the right time out of nowhere. A source of help that just couldn't have been there. But it is there. That's what God does for his people. And notice when he said go into the wilderness and the ravens will feed you elijah didn't say wait 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 let me what I'm not going in the you think birds are going to come and feed ravens that are are scavengers are going to come and give their food to me wait you're sending me to a widow i she didn't have anything what's she going to give me you know he obeyed He obeyed. He trusted God's word. He trusted God's provision. And isn't it interesting about Elijah? James says, the prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That doesn't mean a man who's perfect, but a man who entrusts himself to God's care. A man who hears the word of God, and so God hears him as well. That's what James says about Elijah. And here's Elijah, Elijah entrusting himself to God's care. And 
It's really comical also that her town, Zarephath, is in the middle. They're about 20 miles apart, Tyre and Sidon, the main two cities on the coast of Sidon or Phoenicia. And her little town is right in the middle of them. So right under the nose of Jezebel's father, Ethbaal, right in Baal's backyard, you might could say. It could have been anywhere. But it shows his powers are not confined to Israel or to the wilderness. He can go into the enemy's turf. God is in Baal's territory. And God picked this Gentile widow, whom Baal basically has in his back pocket to destroy, whom Baal has basically left for dead, and he takes her into his abundant grace and mercy. You know, the, the name Ethbaal, the father of Jezebel, is Baal is alive. Not quite, not hardly. I don't think so. Baal can't even provide one day's ration for this, this woman. She's about to die. But then Yahweh comes on the scene, represented by the presence of Elijah, and he brings life. He supplies her to the end of the drought. And so in the midst of Baal's territory, it shows that there is no God except Yahweh. And how applicable applicable when this was written while they were in exile in Babylon, that it would apply to the gods that they're surrounded with in Babylon. How important for them immersed in idolatry in Babylon to hear no God but Yahweh. The image here is amazing because Israel, you might say, was remade into the image of the harlot queen Jezebel. She represented who Israel was. And so there's Israel wallowing in adultery with Baal and Asherah. And Yahweh goes to seek out a poor widow bride among the Gentiles. That is gorgeous. He will have a bride. And though Israel rejects him as her husband, he will take a bride even from the nations as he promised Abraham. His grace will spread to the nations whether or not he is rejected by his people. God's promise to the Gentiles will not be frustrated. And it's interesting when Jesus is in his own hometown in Nazareth. And he can sense that he's rejected. He already knows that he's rejected and hated by his own people. And he gives this event. And he says, you know, there are a lot of, lot of widows in Israel in that day. A lot of widows. He could have gone anywhere. You know where he went? He went to a Gentile. He went to a Gentile. And they got the message. He's saying, if you reject me, this good news will spread. Of course, it would anyway. But if you, even if you reject me, this good news will spread to the Gentile. And then, in the same spirit as Jezebel, they take him to throw him off a cliff. But it wasn't his time. And so it says, he just walked through them away. <laughs> so this event resonated even in Jesus' own life as he was facing his own people 
knowing he would be rejected. He even had the vision of going to the Gentiles with the gospel. And he had this as the forerunner of it that he announced to the Israelites. Dr. Barr in the 19th century writes this, The need and misery of a poor widow are not too insignificant for him. He observes her in tears and her son's desolate cabin is for him to place worthy, a place worthy of the revelation of his glory and goodness. Be encouraged. He chooses the weak. He chooses the helpless. He finds them. Nobody even knows they're there. He finds them. He looks for them. He comes to you when you and I are weak in our sin. We're helpless. We have nowhere to turn. Look to this widow and say, oh, Lord, as you came to the widow of Zarephath who was on her last leg, come to me. I'm weak and helpless. And he comes to you. It seems cruel, doesn't it? A little weird that Elijah says, bring me food first. You know, like. Elijah, that's a little rude, you know, like women and children first, and then the guy eats his food, you know. But you know the point. If she really believed that the flour and oil would produce endlessly, then she'll entrust him and say, yeah, I believe I'll have plenty. I'll give you this first. Remarkable faith on her part at that point. She now is entrusting herself to Yahweh and her care into him. And so we depend upon the sheer word of God, every promise of the Bible for forgiveness, for transformation, as Ryan spoke of, for new life, for the final new heavens and the new earth, for God's providence and presence in the midst of the worst things that may happen in this world. And remember, these miracles are They're redemptive miracles. They're restorative. They're announcing what God will finally do in this world when he will remove all poverty. He will remove all famine. And he will bring an everlasting nourishment and restoration to his people. This is a little foretaste of the final new creation. And finally then, still in Zarephath, but here's part two. Death and resurrection. Everything seems to be going fine, right? We've got the food. Everything's rolling. And then my son dies. Shocking invasion of tragedy. This is horrible that this would happen to her. And you, you just wonder, who are you, Yahweh? You bring this wonderful thing in my life and then suddenly terrible things come into my life. Why would you provide the oil and flour and then turn around and do this? Even Elijah seems to be saying that in his prayer. It doesn't make sense. She had just come to faith in Yahweh, the bewildering ways of God. She's like she's like a just born baby antelope wobbling and falling, you know? She's just barely here and then you you just cut her feet out from under her. Have a heart, Yahweh. And then you see her own response. It's because I'm guilty, right? You did this because I'm such a bad person. Any of those things ever happen where you think, why have things turned upside down? 
It must be because I'm such a sinner. It must be because I've failed in so many ways and he's just slamming me. But no, he was preparing to do a great thing as he always, always is. I can't say what the great thing will be. I can't say that your situation will turn around, but the greatness of God now is he is forming you into the image of Christ. He is causing you to be an instrument of light in this world, and he will always be doing that great work in your life. You see, this is a comfort to you. I love how Ralph Davis puts this. He says, this passage understands you. See? This passage understands you. It understands what you're going through. It's presenting it to you so that you can say, yes, these things happen to me. Look at God's activity in the midst of this. He's just active in the same way in our life as a church and us individually. And Elijah, of course, not ignoring her distress, not even scolding. What are you talking about, God? You don't have any faith? No, he takes it up. Her, her anguish becomes his anguish before God, which is a great example of prayer for us. Right? Our brothers and sisters' anguish and their frustration and their confusion. For us to bring that anguish and frustration and confusion before God. We may not have any answers, but we have a throne that we can go to, right? We have a God we can cry out to on their behalf. And this action of new life is a further proclamation of his lordship. Because you see, every year, this is how interesting the bail cycle is. At the end of the rainy season, you have the dry season. In their minds, at this point, Baal is defeated by Mot, M-O-T, the god of the underworld. And he goes into the underworld through the dry season. And then with the help of his female friend, Asherah, he comes back from the dead and the latter rains come. That's what happens with Baal every year. Into the grave, out, into the grave, out. And so here, Yahweh is, is declaring, he not only rules the rains, he not only rules in the provision of food, he rules the realm of death. He enters in the final territory of death. He goes into Mott's own world and snatches this boy out. And this is the proclamation of the glory of Israel. And isn't it amazing that he, you know, corpses were regarded, here's one phrase for them, the mothers of uncleanness because they transmit their uncleanness. You walk in a room with a corpse and its uncleanness radiates and infects you. <laughs> but Elijah who bears the life of God, who represents the life of God, stretches his body on the unclean body of the boy. And he gives life. Yahweh gives life to this son. This is a sign, as are the New Testament resurrections of Jairus' son and or daughter and the widow's son and Lazarus himself, tokens, pictures, signs of the very resurrection of Christ. 
And in the person of Christ, God has truly entered the realm of death. He's gone into that territory, not just to get a child in that sense, but to bear the punishment and wrath which brought man into death. To take on that punishment, this physical death and eternal death and eternal punishment, the full weight and destruction of God's twin towers of wrath crashed upon Jesus on the cross. He was utterly broken in our place. And then he returned from the dead. Yeah, This is God going into death and God coming out of death. With everlasting forgiveness for anyone who will trust him. For favor with God forever for anyone who will trust him. For a new physical final resurrection beyond the grave. For anyone who touched him, who trusts him. And he's come after us. He's rescued us from disaster. He's laid himself upon our corpse. Identifying with us. Bearing our sin. And raising us from the dead. That is our precious Lord Jesus. Whom we worship and celebrate. As he says in Revelation 1. I died. Behold I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Go to him. (laughs) Go to him to be rescued. The only one that can save you. The only one that can give you life here and forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for your precious word to us. We praise you for how the whole of your word proclaims our Lord Jesus. In so many pictures, in so many signs. And Lord, we thank you that you are the true living resurrection The life and the resurrection as you proclaim to Martha and Mary. Lord, you're our life and resurrection. You are our hope. Our hope for forgiveness, for change. Our hope to be renewed so that we can more and more love people. Those close and those far away. Bless us, Lord, with the new life that you bring us in Christ Jesus. Amen.